Hey, hello, everybody. This is uh, Ed Robinson, and welcome to the Deep End Podcast. The Deep End. The Deep End. With Ed Robinson. The Deep End. Sister Karen is always sharing things with me, and she shared, before I introduce you to my guest, she shared with me a couple of acrostics or acronyms, and I thought it was very appropriate. One is the word N, E-N-D. Just think about the word N. Most people, when you think of the word N, everything just kind of stops right there. But in this case, she, she was reminding me that effort never dies. Effort never dies. My mother used to always tell us all the time, nothing beats, an, uh, beats a, a failure, but a try. So you just keep on trying. And then the other acrostic that she shared with me was no. And no just simply means the next opportunity. So I want to give you a lifeguard tower moment. And all of you know that each episode, I try to begin with a lifeguard tower moment. Basically, what is something that we can do for someone else? So this week, I want you to be on the lookout for a United States Postal Service worker, a mail carrier, someone at the customer at the front office or so. And I want you to do something nice for them, whether it's, you know, giving them a card, whether it's giving them dinero or money, or just letting them know that they're doing an outstanding job. You know, they get a lot, they, they catch a lot of flack, if you will. I want you to go postal in a good way and do something nice uh, for them. Also, I just want to encourage you to do connect with me on Instagram and Facebook. And then also we're moving over to YouTube. So I need you to go to YouTube and then subscribe to the channel so we can continue to uh, grow and build our audience. So you know, on today, I am joined with a very special, I call her a prominent, a very dynamic individual in the person of Dr. Raina Raya. She is a proud graduate of USC School of Pharmacy. She is a practicing pharmacist. And the theme for today's uh, episode is beating the odds. And perhaps you may find yourself in a situation where you feel like your back is against the wall. You might even feel that the chips are down or you may even feel like you've been dealt an unfair hand. And on this particular episode, we're going to hear an inspiring story that I think that will motivate uh, individuals from, for generations to come. And so I'm very grateful that she pressed forward with courage. And so again, we want to encourage you to give you something that will help you along those lines. So Dr. Reyna, welcome to the Deep End uh, with that podcast. Well, thank you for having me. I'm, I'm just really flattered and honored to be able to join you. You are more than welcome. So how are you doing today? I'm doing good. I'm doing pretty good considering the times we're living in right now. Okay. So let's, let's just jump right into the Deep End with Dr. Reyna. So Dr. Reyna, tell me, where does your story begin? Well, if you go all the way to the beginning, I'm actually an immigrant to this country. I came, I was born in Mexico. Um, I was brought here by my parents when I was a very young child. Uh, we lived in East LA for the first years that we lived here. And then we moved to Compton. So on my Facebook page and my Instagram page, my introduction says, I'm a Mexican girl from Compton. And that tells you everything you need to know about me. <laughs> It sounds like you have a, a proud heritage and proud, proud culture. I do. I'm very proud of both my cultures, my American culture and my Mexican culture. Um, and I am proud that my American culture includes my formative years being in Compton, which I felt um, most of my long lasting friendships and relationships uh, were formed there 
during my schooling years. Um, you know, my, I think a lot of my character, my resilience, my stubbornness were all, um, you know, they, they were born because of the environment and the situations that we had to survive. Okay, so how, how old were you when you, when you uh, came here from, from Mexico? I was probably under two. Okay. Yeah, I was a toddler. Mm -hmm. so, yeah. so, so Dr. Reina, tell us a little bit in your own way about your family. So I am the now the oldest of six surviving children. I had an older sister who passed away when she was four months old, and I had an older brother who passed away at the age of 22. Um, and um, so now I'm the, old, the next oldest. And we had a very conservative, traditional Mexican upbringing. Uh, we spoke English from the gate out and Spanish from the gate in. You know, my father thought it was rude for us not to respect our elders and they didn't speak English. So we had to communicate in the language that they did. So, so we were very cognizant of sort of that division of cultures when we were at our home. You know, um, uh, fortunately for us, we grew up in Compton in a situation that was very unique um, with our neighbors. And so, I mean, I think that is um, a situation that was a blessing and it added a lot to both my sisters, my brother and I is just growing. And you, you said earlier that you were from a, a very divergent background and speaking of that, there is a lady that speaks so glowing and so very well and, and well-spoken and just it, so to speak is enamored with you. And her name is Claudia Perkins, who happened to be one of our mutual friends. Tell us about right. How do you know Claudia? <laughs> so Claudia and I, um, we lived in Compton for a little while um, in one address. And then my father finally um, decided to purchase a home. And he purchased it on Gibson Avenue in Compton. So if you're familiar with that area at all, our street used to be a cul-de-sac. Okay. And the, the, the houses, there were no houses in front of us because it's a 710 freeway. Oh, yeah, yes. So there were only, uh, there's four houses on the street, but, or there were four, four houses, but one faced the other direction. So we didn't really count that house. Our house was the next house and we were a Mexican family. The next house was Claudia and her mother who had just moved here not long ago from Louisiana. And then the third home was a Samoan family. And so we had this incredible mixture of people there, but we also formed some incredible friendships. So Claudia and I met the summer before the eighth grade, and you could not find two more different people. I mean, she was just, she's a single ch uh, only child at the time. And, I'm, you know, I have six siblings. And so um, I think the word that she used to use was I was fast. <laughs> and it wasn't that I was, it was just, I think I was a little more worldly than she was. And so for a hundred reasons. Or, or maybe she meant fast by you were real smart. You got it real fast. Uh, yes, we're going to assume that. <laughs> but I think we didn't know each other. And I thought, oh, she's, you know, she's so spoiled. She's an only child. And, and I think she probably thought the same of us. But before school started, somehow or another, we became friends. We are still friends to this date. That is my family. In January, I had COVID. And she was one of two people that came to my house, brought me food, checked on me. Mm -hmm. That's okay. I just feel everybody. 
should have a friend like Claudia. When I talk about good people, and I've been blessed in my, in my lifetime to be touched by so many good people, she's top of the line. She is one of the, the best. I think anybody who knows her knows that she has one of those genuine good hearts. She has been there for my children. She has been there for me. She's been there for my family. And I, I, I can't say enough good things about her. Yeah, she's amazing. Well, it seems like you all have a deep relationship with Claudia, but it sounds like you also was exposed to, you know, nowadays they talk about diversity and equity and inclusion, but it seemed like you and Claudia got that at a real early age. We, we did. We were blessed to have that. Do you know what holidays were like on our block? I mean, we had, there was a lot of food exchanging doors. You know, we were uh, taking things over and they were bringing things over. And I mean, it was just a very inclusive neighborhood. I mean, to this date, we still are in touch with one another. Our children know their children. You know, it's just an amazing, it was an amazing time in our life when I think about it. Yeah. When I think about where we are, even in racial situations in the world right now, I think what a blessing it was that we grew up in that type of environment. And it's amazing. You know, we're going to learn a little bit more about your story as we continue to talk, but I just want to plug this also. When you look at where you and Claudia, as an example, came from it, we're talking about beating the odds. The two of you summarily have, in my opinion, beat the odds. She being an administrator with LA Unified School District, and then you being uh, a pharmacist. So, so where, did, where did you go to high school? We, um, we all went to Dominguez High in Compton. We went to Whaley Junior High. We went to um, Dominguez. Claudia and I were really lucky. This is where Claudia was the mover and the shaker of a lot of things. She found out when we were at Whaley that there was a program at our high school for students interested in going into medical fields. And so we had to be interviewed for this program. So she signed both of us up because whatever she did, you know, I was right behind. And um, we ended up uh, being accepted to this program, which meant that our high school consisted of us taking college classes with college students um, and for half a day. And then we would be bused back to our high schools and we would take our electives at our high schools. And um, that was all through high school. And so when we ended up in high school, uh, when we finished high school, um, we had a lot of college credits already. So had I gone to college immediately after high school, I probably could have come in as a senior, I mean, not as a senior, but a, a junior or a sophomore, because we had all those credit classes we were taking, they were also giving us credit at college. Yeah, so it was an incredible program at that time. Very impressive what the two of you were doing. Thank you again to Claudia. Claudia pushing you and Oh, yes, <laughs> absolutely. <laughs> she so was, she wasn't gonna let up. And, and you know, for us, that meant getting up very, very early um, because we had to get on the bus to get to the college. Um, for me, it also meant I was working full time by then, you know, and I, it meant that I would leave high school a little bit early to go make my three to 11 shift. And then I would come home and do my homework, sleep a few hours and get up in the morning and do it all over again. So yeah, so. Wow. So, so it sounds like your work ethic, again, I'm, I'm assuming stimulating all the way from your, or emanating or coming from your parents, were developed at a very early age. Yes. Yes. And so, and I think that has continued throughout my life, but it was something that I modeled to my children. 
that if you were going to school, that was not an excuse to not be working. And it wasn't an excuse the other way. That was just our family structure. So we did, well, I didn't go to school at the beginning, but I worked two, three jobs, whatever it took to get my, the things that my children needed um, until it you know, was time for them to leave home. And um, then it was time for me to go to school. So Dr. Reyna, let's go back to your high school years. How would you describe yourself as a, as a student? Well, when you go back to your D high days, how would you describe <laughs> Down for life. Um, uh, we were in, as a group. So in high school, we formed this collective group. We were all really intelligent nerds. You know, we were, should have been, when you look at um, movies that I see about high school and so we should have been the outcasts, but really we were actually quite popular at school. You know, we were leaders of groups, of, of uh, clubs and organizations. We were always involved in things. I think one of our friends, we got her to be the first Latina homecoming queen candidate. Um, just a lot of, you know, a lot of little things that I think back, I go, we were really groundbreakers, you know, we weren't even thinking about it, we were just having a good time in high school, but we were very smart, we were collectively a very smart group, everybody had very definitive ideas of what we were going to do at college after we finished, and so, you know, I don't think we ever felt um, isolated or um, as outcasts, because our group was very, very tight, very tight. That same group, except for Gina Cross, who passed away um, a couple of decades ago, uh, we're still friends today. We are still that group. It's amazing. You know, there, there's the uh, Chinese proverb that says, when you drink the water, never forget the brook. Translated, remember those who have helped you along the way. And it sounds Absolutely. like we're all doing the same thing. Excellent. So, um, this theme episode, as you know, the episode for this theme, Dr. Reyna, is beating the odds. And I remember speaking with you the other day, and, and it just, it was very profound. You said something along the lines, creating a blueprint for your sons. Can yes. you tell, tell our listening audience a little bit more what you meant by that? So I, I had, an, like I mentioned, an older brother who passed away from a drug overdose when he was 22. He was also a gangbanger and uh, or a gang member. And I had other family members who were involved in gangs. I mean, that was, to be honest, uh, a very real part of life in Compton at that time. Um, and so when he died, I had a six month old son that I was raising on my own. And I thought, this is not the blueprint I want for my son. I've got to actively go in, step in, think about this and figure out how to create a different blueprint for his life. And so a lot of people call that a lot of different things, breaking the chains, ending generational curses. Um, I wasn't that astute back then. I, I could just think of a blueprint, you know, that I wanted him to build this foundation and this home built on integrity and ethics that were very different in a lot of ways from the things that we were surrounded with. And even some of the things that we saw at home, to be honest. I actually lived on my own from the time I was a teenager. 
And so part of my friendship with Claudia and my friend Gina and my friend uh, Leah, who lived in Orange County, was that I lived in their home. Their parents took me in. And so I, I, you know, lived with one person for a period of time. I lived with another person for a period of time. And throughout that, Claudia was insisting I attend and finish high school, you know. And so I did that. And um, by the time I finished high school, I think I rented somebody's little reconditioned garage. That was my first appointment, my first apartment. It's what I could afford. Um, but even in that process, just kind of thinking, I've got to do better and be better so that I can teach my child how to create his own blueprint that is not based on what we've seen before. And so, so that's a challenge. I mean, you know, raising kids in this day and age, I mean, you know, it's, 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 it's a journey. And when you're raising them to break, not just exterior forces, but interior forces, because sometimes family can step in and not create the optimal environment for your child. So I had to find people to model behaviors for my sons, men that I wanted them to look up to admire, women that I wanted them to understand generosity of spirit, emotions were not something to be ashamed of. Just, you know, um, I, I, I had an older gentleman that worked at my job, Mr. James Matthews, and he was a retired longshoreman. He was um, probably in his 70s by the time I met him, 70s, maybe going on 80. And I asked him to teach my son how to tie a tie because my son didn't want to wear a clip on to a sixth grade graduation. And I said, um, can you teach him? He said, yes, but after he graduates, bring him back because I'm going to teach him how to do it himself, because every man should know how to tie a tie and polish his shoes. And so he ended up inviting us to his church. We ended up joining his church. Um, and so I have people like that, you know, that really helped me get that blueprint in order, you know, and like all blueprints, there's times you got to erase little parts and rewrite little parts. And we did that. And we did that because there were people around us who really taught me, I was learning. I mean, I was a 19 year old mother. I didn't know any, I mean, you think you know everything, but you don't know anything. And so I had to learn as well as I was raising my son, I was also learning how to be a better person, a better mother, a better woman, a better daughter of Christ. So that's when, when I talk about the blueprint, those are the things that I talk about, that I think about. I mean, that, that's powerful. And then you think about, that old notion, you know, it takes a village to raise a child. And, oh. <laughs> and Mr. Matthews and, and so forth. Yes. So, so Dr. Rayner, again, we're talking about beating the odds and someone may be listening to uh, this podcast and wondering about, you know, the whole notion. So at 19, just stay with me for a moment. At age 19, did you project or in your wildest dream that you would be where you are today? No, and yes, and I'll, I'll tell you why, because I knew I always wanted to be a pharmacist, and so because I couldn't go to college immediately, um, I took a job at a pharmacy, and so I became one of their corporate officers, so I had a, a decent job. I mean, it was, I worked really long hours, but it was a, it was a decent job, and, but in the back of my mind, it was always, I'm going to get to school at some point, and I'm going to be a pharmacist, and so, so the journey that it took to get there was not something I could envision. 
but one of the goals was yes I always kind of thought I would get to be a pharmacist yeah and I know you you now have two sons tell us about your sons what's going on with them so my sons are one of the things about raising children with character is that they're also going to disagree with you and you have to accept that because just like you want them to stand up to the world, they have to be able to come to you and say, I disagree. And so I wanted both of my sons to go to college right after high school, because that's what I wanted to do. Both of my sons in turn came to me and said, that's not what I want to do right now. So one of them uh, started a career in the military um, and he, this will be his 20th year. He's an officer. He went in as an enlisted person. He's an officer now. Yes, um, he has a, a beautiful family. Um, my youngest son went into um, law enforcement as soon as he was old enough to even fill out the application. And he has a successful career there. Both of them have since gone back to school and have their bachelor's degrees um, with the hope of, you know, one of them it was actually starting the master's program. Yeah. So all in due time. All in due time. Wow. Yeah. One, one of the things I've had to learn is it's never on my time. It's on God's time. So I have to sit back and kind of just, uh, you know, patience is one of the things that I've, I've always had to work on. Okay. <laughs> yeah. When you look back at Blueprint and what your amazing sons are doing as a mom, what does that, what does it do for you? Oh, it's, it's amazing. It's, 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 uh, I remember watching that movie, Waiting to Exhale, and I told somebody once, I said, when they finally had their families, the first time each one of them had their families, I sort of felt like that was the moment where I could exhale, because just to know that they're okay, that they're good, that they have somebody that is their partner in life, and to see them grow as parents, and to see some of the things that you taught them and they're passing that on to their children um, is amazing. It's just one of the most beautiful, beautiful things that you can witness. Yeah. Wow. So I'm very proud of both of them. Yeah. Give me goosebumps even as you. <laughs> so, so tell us, what was your journey to becoming a pharmacist? So um, when my youngest was finishing high school, I had told my, I kept insisting to my older son, I said, look, I didn't save, I could not save a lot of money, but there's a little nest egg in case you ever decide to go to college. He said, well, I'm in the military now. The military will actually take care of my college education. He said, why don't you use that money? And so I said, well, maybe I will. And so I started really scaling my life back a little bit. Um, I'll just give you a, for example, I used to have like season tickets to the theater and I thought, well, I'm not going to give up the theater. So what I did was I became a volunteer docent so I could go see people and still watch theater and save that money. And so that money, I started putting away. That was strategic. <laughs> yes. I'm not going to give up. I, and that's, that's, something that I think we forget that you have to also treat yourself with kindness. You also have to gift yourself, you know, the things that you love to do. And so, so I started doing, you know, figuring out how I could cut corners and, and save money and, and minimize my expenditures. And so when my oldest, my youngest son graduated high school, we both attended junior college together. 
And um, I got two degrees from there and um, started scaling back work a little bit because at that point I was working maybe 70 hours a week. And so I was accepted at Cal State Long Beach. I finished my first year very successfully. Um, and then I was diagnosed with cancer that summer. And so uh, when I went to the doctor, the, they told me that I had an invasive aggressive form of breast cancer. And um, I was gonna, the doctor's advice at that time was she said, yeah, I, I would probably postpone school at this point. And I said, oh, I waited way too long to postpone anything right now. So I said, as long as God gives me breath and the will to get up in the morning, I'm going to be up and I'm going to be at school. Now, there was a point in time during chemo where I could not be in class in person. And so I had professors that allowed me to submit my paperwork electronically and things like that. But I um, had a really tough year with, with chemo. And right when I finished chemo at the end of um, that first year, I was diagnosed with a brain lesion that had to be repaired immediately by some um, neurosurgeons over at uh, Kaiser Sunset. And so that took me out. I had just come back to school and then that took me out for a couple of weeks. And again, the professor was saying, you, you're probably, I mean, my doctor was saying, you're probably going to have to sit out this semester. And I said, yeah, I, I'm not the sitting out type of person. So <laughs> I said, what do I have to do? I remember he told me, you cannot even carry anything more than two pounds. And so one of my sisters um, would come to school with me every day so that she could carry my books for me. We had a little um, bag on wheels and she would carry them for me because one of my biology textbooks alone would be, you know, close to five pounds. And so she came with me for a few weeks until finally it was deemed that I could do it myself. And um, in the process, I was applying to the School of Pharmacy at USC. I was accepted. Um, the first three years that I was there, I was still undergoing either treatment or surgeries. We would time the surgeries during my breaks. So in the summer break and spring break and um, Christmas break um, so that I could have the surgery, we would have the surgery immediately as soon as break started so that I would at least have that week or two to heal before I had to go back to school. And, um, you know, here I am living testimony that there's life after cancer yeah so I graduated with my pharma my um uh doctor in pharmacy doctorate in pharmacy in uh, May of 2015 at the age of 52 the oldest graduate that they had had in about 40 years <laughs> wow yeah Marina, yeah. it's amazing. I mean, I mean, I'm just hearing your story. There was things I did not know. So the cancer, and then you said a brain lesion. A brain lesion at the year mark of when I was diagnosed with cancer, I had a brain lesion that had to be repaired. Yes. Mm. Yeah. It was it was a journey. I just kept honestly when I was diagnosed, I had just finished this incredible successful year. I was an honor graduate. You know, I was a, a I had Latin honors already geared up and and. Um, I remember when she told me I was diagnosed, I, I just, my first thought was like, God, you are not going to make this easy for me. You're really going to make me work for this. <laughs> but there was, I remember never a point where I thought, why me? That wasn't even really a thought. It was like, okay, if this is what you want in my journey, then all I can do is find why you want me to take this journey. 
what is it that I can do with it? And um, that first year, we started an online event called Rock the Pink. Um, my second year, I was appalled to find that USC did not have a breast cancer awareness event. And so with one of my professors, we thought we've got to change that. We've, here we are with one of the biggest cancer centers on the premises, um, uh, hundreds of pharmacy students, and we have no breast cancer awareness event, you know, something that is so prevalent in our cultures. And so, so we changed that. And actually this last Thursday, this past Thursday, we had our ninth annual Rock the Pink event at USC. Yeah, it was amazing. And so we've had speakers from all cultures come and, and tell their stories because that's what I wanted the event to be. Every woman to have a platform to tell her story because, um, you know, it's, it's, first of all, it's cathartic to the person that's saying, telling their story. And it's almost this eye opener, even for family members that hear the story because they're like, whoa, I didn't know that she was going through that or she felt that kind of thing. This past week, we had a speaker, a young um, African-American woman that I met about 10 years ago. And uh, she's a 25-year vet from the Air Force who's been living with metastatic breast cancer for 12 years in December. She was given a three to five year life expectancy. And so I want people to know about her. I want to know that even when it's metastatic, you can still live a lot of life you know, and so that's part of sharing my story because I want people to know that receiving a cancer diagnosis um, is hard and it's a difficult thing to navigate, um, but there are a lot of people going through that with you and there's a lot of life that can still happen, you know, so. Amazing, Dr. Raina. Thank you very much for just being so vulnerable and sharing that with us. And I know someone is probably thinking the same question that I'm about to ask you. What got you through those very difficult health issues? Oh, I really think it was always thinking about um, what we could do for someone else. It was faith. It was a lot of faith because I just kept thinking, you know, you brought me here. I know you're going to walk with me the rest of the way. Um, and in the meantime, what can I do? I don't want to be blind to what God had in store for me. I don't want to be so lost in the cancer that I didn't see what else he had in store for me. And that included how do we turn my story or my journey into something that helps somebody else. And so I really stayed focused on that. I really stayed stuck on, let's talk about this with other people. Let's help other people. Let's make it the norm that we're discussing it and not that, because even in my journey, I met a lot of women that didn't talk about it because they were still embarrassed by it. And so I wanted to normalize that a little bit. And I think I was just so busy doing all these things that I, I didn't allow myself too much self-pity, you know, although I, I had one moment and I remember um, crying to my son, my older son had come home. My older son was in Iraq when I was diagnosed. And that was, that was probably one of his moments of the whole journey was having to call him and tell him. 
and he's so far away and couldn't we really do anything. And I didn't want him out there worried about me over here. So he had come home finally on leave and, you know, I was having my moment and, um, I remember just telling him, I kind of feel like life is out of control a little bit. And, you know, people are washing my dishes and they're not putting them back the way I like them, you know, just silly things. And, and I remember he listened to me. He, um, got a little teary with me. My older son was also there. And at, after that, he said, are you done? let's get to living. And I said, okay, I'm done. I am done. <laughs> I am done. So, so we give our, I, I have my moments, there's moments. And I think if, if anything, I would always tell people, have your moments, feel your feelings, feel your sadness, your anger, your whatever it is you have to feel, but don't get stuck there. Don't get stuck there because you are essentially obstructing your own journey and your own health. Yeah. Like what you said, to talk about it, share, share, yes. mitigate the issue of, of shame, embarrassment. And yes. Awesome. Yes. Our cultures, you know, African-American women um, and Latino women, we're ravaged by breast cancer and there's still not much in the pipelines in terms of treatment for aggressive cancers. Now there's just been an approval for, for a medication for um, triple positive cancer, which is a groundbreaking. Um, but that comes from all of us participating and research. And I know that that's a touchy subject for, you know, a lot of us because the history of research has not been very benign to us. Um, but without research, and I'll give you a, a real good example. My, my mom, after I was diagnosed with cancer about three years later, um, actually no more than that. Um, my mother was diagnosed with breast cancer. Now she's in her seventies. And she had almost an exact form of the same breast cancer that I had. Um, and so I had been tested for markers when I was diagnosed. I had no, I tested for none. When my mother was diagnosed, they now tested for 12 different markers. And we still showed up um, with no markers on her end or my end. But most people would take that as, okay, well, we, we just didn't have any of the genetic mutations. As a scientist, I can tell you that we probably do, but because Latinas participate in minimal numbers in research, they haven't found the marker that is inherent to Latinas. Just like African-American women, they participate very, very scarcely in research. And so they haven't found the markers that affect us. You know, And so I think that's one of the things that um, is my life goal, to change that a little bit. For those that are listening, what, what is the message? What is the takeaway you want them to learn from what you just said about the markers or lack of? Or lack of I want them to go online. There's places like um, the Army of Love, the Dr. Susan Love Foundation. Um, there's a couple of uh, websites. I, I'm drawing a blank right now on some of the names, but I know cancer.org has a couple of websites where they ask you, there's some where they will ask you to submit saliva. There's some where they will ask you to do questionnaires. Um, but there's some, they're just asking you about your lifestyle, you know, what you eat, how much you exercise, that kind of thing. Um, because I used to participate in those things. And when I was diagnosed, I felt um, I had, I was diagnosed with very aggressive cancer. 
that two years before I was diagnosed had an 80% mortality rate. The year before I was diagnosed, two treatments had been approved because of research that other women had participated in that saved my life, literally saved my life. And so, I mean, I'm here 12 years later because of those women. And so I want all of us to be those women for other people, for our daughters. Wouldn't it be wonderful if our daughters grew up and there was no breast cancer anymore? That'd be wonderful. I have granddaughters now, you know, that I would love to eradicate it for them. So participate if you can. When it's a family member that's diagnosed and they ask for genetic testing, participate, just participate, you know. It may not save your life, but it can surely save the life of someone that you love. Yeah. And let's not forget, men also get breast cancer. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So if if there's a family member that has had breast cancer, your mother, your sister, it increases your chances. It's still always a lot less than women, but just be aware. Be aware. Don't ignore things. Be your own advocate. So, Dr. Reyna, I know you're in the realm of pharmacy, and there's the epidemic, uh, the opioid epidemic, if you will. As a pharmacist, is there anything that you wish that parents or teenagers or young people knew? I do. There is a correlation, um, and we know that uh, every about 80% of people who go on to become drug dependent on opioids had a legitimate prescription to begin. So that means that somebody had a root canal, went to the doctor, had it taken care of, and was prescribed an opioid and continued, you know, and and then it gets to a point where people start um, seeing the doctor for any pain and getting more opioids. And there's going to be doctors. They don't care what they do to our communities. They don't care. They don't live here. I work in, in South Central. The number of opioid prescriptions that we see on a daily is incredible. It's, it's just astronomical. But we see opioid prescriptions for patients who went to have their teeth cleaned. And, and you're giving this person opioids. So as a, as a consumer, as a parent, as um, just an individual, I would say go to doctors who, if they're good dentists, first of all, you don't need to have opioids, you know, they will treat you. My dentist, he won't give me anything more than Motrin, you know, because he already knows that I'm not going to have any more pain than that. If Ness even, and I hardly ever even take that, but be alert, be alert to people who are prescribing your children opioids unnecessarily. You know, did they try something less addictive before they gave you an opioid? Um, and, and I'm not, um, you know, break your arm. You know what I'm saying? There's acute circumstances. You're in a car accident. There's situations where you're going to have to go to stronger painkillers, but that's not always the case. And especially doctors, I find that do not live in the areas where they are prescribing tend to go overboard. You see that correlation. I do. I do. I do. And I've had a lot of conversations. Part of my job is I get it from both ends because I have to explain to the patient why I have grave concerns about filling this medication for you. And I have to, on this end, have this conversation with this doctor to let him know that, hey, you know, uh, why are we jumping this patient to this medication and we're not going trying these different steps? And I, I'll be honest, there's doctors that'll tell me that they're afraid to say no to patients. Okay. Or, you know, and 
just a lot of different circumstances. So just be alert, be alert, you know, try to have an honest conversation with your doctors about what you actually need. And that goes for any medication, even if you're going for breast cancer treatments or any chronic disease you be part of that conversation. I don't want my doctor talking over me. You need to be talking with me about what we together are going to decide is best for my treatment. It's really important. I'm so encouraged to know that there are Dr. Rainers that are on the front line and uh, between the injuries of the patient as well as the doctor. So thank you very much for that. Thank you. So, so Dr. Rainer, as we get ready to, to wind down this episode, I want to kind of do what I, what I call a lightning uh, round where I'm just going to throw some things in and you just give me a choice. So uh, Dominguez or Centennial High School? Don's for life. <laughs> Dominguez, of course. Going out for a meal or preparing a meal? Preparing a meal. Football or baseball? I would say neither. I would say hockey. But if I had to choose, it would be football. You're a hockey fan? I just became one a couple of years ago. Okay. Yeah. Babies or teenagers? Babies. <laughs> okay. And Babies. Then, lastly, what about spending or saving? Saving. Okay. Saving. Right. Thank you, Dr. Rainer. You know, I always like to close out each episode with what I call a coachable moment. That is one or two takeaways for the listening audience. I'm going to yield to you. Do you have a coachable moment or something you would like to share, especially as it relates to beating the odds? Yes. I would say be kind to yourself, but have a plan. Even if that plan has to change along the way, have a plan. And, and the kindness becomes that sometimes we set goals and then we beat ourselves up because we haven't accomplished A, B, and C by X amount of time. You know, it's okay. It's okay. You know, you're going to get there. Just don't lose sight of where you want to get to, you know, but in the process, be kind to yourself, you know. And have a plan. And there's an old saying that she, I'm going to say in this case, he who has a plan is in command. It sounds like Dr. Raina Raya certainly had a plan and still have a plan. And I want to thank you, uh, Dr. Raina, for taking the time to just share this information with us as we're talking about beating the odds, and especially someone who grew up in Compton and surrounding areas, individuals to know that just like Dr. Raina did it, you can do the same thing too. So Dr. Raina, if individuals want to connect with you, what's the best way for them to connect with you? They can always email me at rainaraya, um, uh, gmail.com or, or they can find me on Facebook and Instagram. Just my name on both both of them. Again, thank you very much, Dr. Rain. And we certainly will be in contact with you. We appreciate you being an outstanding odds beater. Special thanks to your sons, what they're doing, and then especially the one that is serving in the military. Thank you for this. Thank you. And I just want to encourage everyone to connect with us on Instagram and Facebook at Deep In With Ed. Also, uh, if you're watching this on YouTube, I'm asking you to subscribe to the page so you can get updates and alerts. And we're very grateful for everyone. I want to give a special shout out to my production team, uh, Nicole Robinson and Dr. Danielle Robinson Jenkins. Also, a special shout out to a good friend of mine, Rodney Friend. He's the one actually did the jingle for the music that's on the deep end. I can't sing, so I'm not going to sing. <laughs> I really thank you. And just remember that the deep end podcast is a beyond the conversations production.